Okay, I'm going to start this morning by telling, teasing with one of the most incredible stories I feel like that I've ever been a part of at this church. I've been here since 1998. We've seen tons of lives changed. And all of you are evidence of at some point in your life, God getting a hold of you, wrecking you, and reorientating you to the gospel. This particular story is a, a friend of mine named Brian who happens to now be a pastor in Nashville. Um, but when Brian came through the door, it was on this side. I can remember the day as clear as day. Brian came in, shaved head, kind of came in with a strut, shorter guy, but he looked like he could mess me up if we got in a fight. Gauges in his ears, dark framed glasses. And uh, I met Brian, and he looked at me with like, not warm eyes, but like a lot of mistrust, like this dude was jaded. Now he had come with his friend Rick. Brian was actually Sifu. Now in martial arts, I don't know if that's Taekwondo, and he's gonna be really upset when he listens to this, but he's a martial arts like instructor, okay? And one of the people that he was instructing was a guy named Rick that was going to this church, and he noticed something different about Rick. There was something attractive about his lifestyle, how he worked, how he related to others that made Brian attracted to whatever Rick had going on. So Brian, an outspoken atheist, who was very hard-hearted, who would consider now as you talk to him, it was like my hobby to meet Christians because I had like three or four questions that I could bully Christians with and I loved to see the fear on their face when I unraveled their worldview in four questions. Do you guys know these people? This is Brian as he walks in with his friend Rick. Now, backstory, he asked Rick, can I come to church with you? And Rick's answer was, you're not ready. And I remember, I remember talking with Rick like, that's an interesting strategy. <laughs> you're not ready. And as the story played out, it was very obvious that there was a divine appointment for Brian and he got saved, and he was wrecked the very first time he stood in this church and listened to the gospel. Now, I say this is a teaser because I'm gonna tell the rest of the story at the end. Do you guys know the rest of the story? Like three of you are like, I remember that. Okay, the rest of you are like, I have no idea. All right, so I'm gonna start by praying, and we're gonna get into our text. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and you reign over all of creation. You are our Savior and you are our Redeemer. You are the Lamb that was slain. Your blood has forgiven us of our sin. This is good news. Lord, as we open your Bible and we read your scriptures, your word, I pray, you would wreck us in the best way. Lord, shatter the hardness of heart in the room. Reorientate us to the gospel, the good news. Jesus is king. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to move with power, to convict us of sin, to convince us of truth, to encourage us and strengthen us, to refresh us. 
without your power, we are powerless. We need you. Come, Holy Spirit. Take us to Christ. Christ, take us to the Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're gonna start with an exercise. You see I have great toolbox, maybe not all of you can see this. They wouldn't let me bring a whiteboard up every time, so I had to bring a prop, okay? So we're gonna get into the toolbox a little bit today, but we're gonna start with an exercise. I want you to think of the relationships you have in your life, okay? I want you to think specifically about impressive people in your life. And just take like a few seconds when I say, who is the most powerful person that you know? We need to think about who comes to mind. When I say power, this is like people that can make things happen. You know what I'm talking about? Like they can enact their personal will. If they want something, they know how to get it. They always seem to be able to get what they want. Who is the most powerful person that you know? Maybe you have a name that comes to mind. Okay, I'm gonna, uh, this is like, we're not gonna be able to land on the exact right answer on this one, but like, who do you think is the most powerful person on earth right now? The person that can enact their will and get what they want. If you have just like one name that comes to mind. Now, you don't have to argue and debate this. Like, I don't wanna fight to break out but I want you to turn to the person next to you. I just want to say like, I I don't know, this is the name that came out to me. Who's the most powerful person in the world? Go, I'm going to give you 10 seconds. No fighting. No debating. All right. Here's the more important question. Not not necessarily did I want you to really come up with who is the most powerful person on earth right now. What I want us to think about is how did you come up with those answers? This is the thing that I was thinking about this week as I'm in this text. I was thinking about what makes something or someone powerful. There's a lot of things that we can look at when we look at the cross of Christ, the crucifixion in the text this morning. I believe God wants us to have a real conversation about power. Who has it? Where does it come from? What does it look like? And I think as as I reflect on what the world's power looks like, I thought of it like a toolbox, okay? All right, so here's my prop. Jeremy dressed it up nice and neat. We got a hammer in here and some gloves. All right, so here are the tools that I came up with. Now, the more tools you have, in my opinion, the more you are able to make things happen, the more you're able to get what you want, okay? The first one is our mouth or our words. I can remember going and volunteering at my kid's elementary school and there was this girl and she was like bullying everybody. And to be honest, it was like I could very easily see that she was the center of the universe on that playground. Everyone was afraid of her and I'm like, Her personality is horrible, and to be honest, she wasn't the cutest girl on the playground, and yet everybody, you could just see, was like orientated towards this girl, and she was, with her mouth, bullying these people, calling out these people, bringing these people in. She had the ability to control that playground with her mouth. You guys know now, you know the adult version of that. 
your wallet. People with money have options. They can manipulate a system and they can buy things and pay their way to get things done. It's not a bad thing. It's just that's the reality. Money gives us options. But money also makes people listen to you. When a poor person comes in and speaks their opinion and a rich person comes in with power, most likely people are going to listen to the person with the bigger wallet, the big account. In our world, if you have a big wallet, you have power. Maybe you don't have a wallet or a big wallet, but you have charm. You're able to make friends easily, form alliances and partnerships, win people to a certain idea. These are like salespeople. There's many of you here that with your charm and your ability to make relationships, you can form alliances and, and get what you want through your network of friendships and relationships and partnerships. Looks. Looks give us power. I know from personal experience People listen to pretty. I, I, it's one of the critiques of the younger generation is you don't listen to old wise people, you listen to the prettiest person. Like the fit body, good looking woman or man that looks cool, they can tell me how to live my life. With no experience, just pretty. If you're pretty, you have power. That's just reality in our world. Creativity, if you, if you watched the uh, halftime show, Eminem, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar got people all over the stadium dancing and singing. You know, these 1990s rappers that came from very poor backgrounds and became massive influencers because of their creativity, their word, their music, their lyrics, their performance. If you're creative, you have power. All right, I got a few more. Smarts. People that are smart enough to point out problems. People listen to them. Now, I think we should listen to people that can actually solve problems, but we kind of listen to the people that can point fingers. But if you can find problems and point it out, if you're smart, you have, you have power. Muscle, another one, personal experience. <laughs> Intimidating others. Violence, physical threat. We see angry mobs that are threatening violence and we know there is a power wrapped up in that. Political power, this is a position that I own, that I hold, that allows me to make decisions. And the last one is manipulation. If you don't have any of those, but you can do this. You can form the partnership you need. You can find the people that have money. And you can manipulate the world and people in order to get what you want. All right, so we're just going to use this as like the power tools. I, oh, man, when I came up with that, I was like, they're going to love that. <laughs> you guys are like... These are the tools in our world that give us power. And would you, like, if you could just shake your head and say, yes, people that have all those things, they get stuff done. It's just the reality. And you know those people. Some of you are those people. And my dad always said, if you have the right tool, any job, any fixing is easy if you have the right tool. And I've learned I don't have a lot of tools, so a lot of 
fixing is hard for me. But also what I've learned is you don't have to have all the tools. The only thing that's better than having all the tools is having friends with a lot of tools. <laughs> so Matt Dresback is my buddy that I, that I borrow his, his power tools. All right, this is gonna help us read John today. Because the conversation we're gonna have is about where is real power. If that's the world's power, that toolbox represents how we get things done I want to compare and contrast that power with the power that we see on the cross. There is a problem to be fixed in Jerusalem as we open the text this morning. The Jews have a problem and the Romans have a problem. His name is Jesus. The problem that the Jews have is if we go back to uh, John 11, the high priest Caiaphas is panicking. He makes this comment, he says, if we don't stop Jesus, everybody is gonna follow him. Do you remember this? And he says, and then our whole nation will perish. What is he talking about? Caiaphas, the high priest, knows the reality of this. The Jews have been given these religious perks. They have a sort of religious liberty inside the Roman Empire. Jews are allowed to worship Yahweh instead of Caesar. Only the Jews. They have a religious freedom. They are allowed to follow Torah instead of Caesar. They are allowed to have their temple and to worship and to kind of conduct themselves as a Jewish nation. And Caiaphas is seeing the reality that if all the Jews go after Jesus, we will lose our religious freedom and the perks that the Romans have allowed and our nation will perish. They've got a problem, his name is Jesus. And they're desperate to fix it. And we're gonna see them reach into the power toolbox and to see how they try and solve their problem. The Romans have a problem too. Romans love peace. They have come to bring peace to the world and they've done it through conquering the whole region. And as you submit and hail Caesar and everybody listens to the decrees and follows the decrees of Caesar, there will be peace on earth. This is the promise of Caesar. Because they love peace, they take it very serious when somebody tries to usurp Caesar's authority. You try revolution, you don't hail Caesar, you get nailed to a cross. They take it very serious. So their problem is, people are following Jesus. There's an angry mob Peace is being disrupted. There's a problem to be solved, and we're going to see the Romans reach into the power toolbox. Everyone is going to war in this text. Everyone is reaching into this toolbox, except one, the one that knows where real power comes from. And this is going to teach us how we, as the followers of Christ, Christians, how we treat power and where we find power and how we fight. Chapter 19, verse one. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, that's whipped. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him with a purple robe and went up to him again and again, repeatedly saying, hail, king of the Jews, and they slapped him on the face. 
This is the scene. We've all watched Disney movies, and I know we, we don't know what it's like to live in a kingdom with a king, but because of Disney, we know what it looks like when a prince becomes king. The word for that is coronation, okay? And we know that there is a crown involved, a crowning of the king. There is a robe that is put on. There is hailing the new king, and there's typically a kiss on the cheek. That's called a coronation. Now, in the Roman Empire, this was called the euangelion. The euangelion is this good news that a new king has taken the throne. We see the, like, in the, in the cartoons again, and then they got the little scroll, and they go throughout all the villages. These are called heralds. Hark the herald. Look, the herald is coming. And what does the herald say? There's a new king. Euangelion. And throughout all of the villages, they would proclaim or announce the new king, the Euangelion. Now, the Christians used Euangelion, that's the, that's the word for gospel, to say our king has taken the throne. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ means king. The irony of this scene and how it opens up in, in chapter 19 is this, is the Romans think Jesus is a joke, a threat to Caesar, are you kidding me? This guy from Nazareth, this poor man, he rides into town on a donkey and you want us to take this serious? They flog him and then they coronate him in complete mockery, a crown, thorns, a robe of purple, the royal color. Hail, king of the Jews, as they laugh again and again, and instead of a kiss on the cheek, a slap across the face. The irony is the Romans are coronating our king. Jesus has done the miracles. He has loved people. He has taught them the way of his kingdom. It is time for Jesus to take the throne. And the coronation looks like nothing that anyone expected. And it's our first clue into what real power looks like. To the world, this real power looks like a joke. And they're laughing. Sometimes as Christians, I know in my walk, I feel like the joke. Rationalism, plausible arguments, guys like my friend Brian that walks in here and has all the like bullying tactics of the power tools that's trying to dismantle my faith. Watching teens walk away from the faith, watching secularized culture take over and influence the church. And sometimes it feels like I'm in a complete position of weakness. This is, it feels like a joke. Let's go to verse four. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you and to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Now, in other translations, this says, behold the man. 
And I believe that John, the friend of Jesus that wrote this, wants us to stop. John is writing this for our good, that we might, in the middle of this story, stop and behold the man. The irony, again, that Pilate is speaking to us today as he spoke to the Jews that were calling out for a crucifixion. And I took just a minute, I was, I was studying in Blackrock this week, coffee shop in Chandler, and he said, behold the man. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm stopping, put my books down, put my pen down. This is a real event that happened. This is not a fictional tale that somebody made up and wrote down on, a, on paper. Like, I wanna go to the scene. What did it look like to see Jesus bloodied and bruised, flogged, humiliated, mocked in front of the people he came to save and paraded out there. And I beheld that scene. I looked at the man. And in the midst of like great 90s rap music that was going on in Black Rock, I find myself like weeping in the corner of this coffee shop the picture of Jesus coming and taking over the world and reconciling it to God. Is a hard scene to swallow. And the shock, the shock that I had when I read once again their response to beholding the man. They are looking at the man. And here's what it says. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, as soon as they saw him, they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. We have evidence through all of the gospels, these snippets of what Jesus was going through. And we have evidence that he was reading through or reciting psalms. One of those psalms is Psalm 22. And I think as we look at Psalm 22, we have where real power comes from. And Jesus in this moment is he goes to the Father and he goes to the scripture and the psalms that he had learned as a boy are now coming out of him as he faces his accusers, the people he came to save. Crucify him, crucify him, Psalm 22, through his heart. You're enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were put, not put to shame. But I'm a worm of a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in God. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you ever since my mother's breast. From birth I cast, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help me. The Psalms were Jesus' prayer book growing up. The Psalms are our prayer book. If we're gonna fight and go into battle and we're gonna face against power, 
We have to, in our trouble, run to the Psalms, run to the playbook. And the source that we find of power in the Psalms is where? Real help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus' power sources prayer. Pilate answers, you take him, you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis or charge against him. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. The mob is going into the toolbox. This is a religious liberty issue. If you don't allow us to adhere to Torah, which says this man must die, there's going to be all sorts of trouble. Now, Pilate knows, and Paul talked about this, Caesar loves peace. If Pilate cannot control the Jews, what happens? No peace. What happens to Pilate? off with your head. Like that's just the reality of how Caesar works. So Pilate is afraid of the mob. Pilate is afraid of Caesar. And now they say he claims to be the son of God. And it says that Pilate is even more afraid. And he is trying to manipulate the situation to get Jesus off the hook. Where do you come from? And what does Jesus do? It says, Jesus gave him no answer. Listen to Paul Artino's message from last week again, and what I loved about it is like, there's this image I have of Jesus that Paul painted for us, that he is not letting this happen to him. John 10, he told exactly what was gonna happen. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to pick it back up. This is what's happening. Jesus is on a mission, and when Pilate conspires with Jesus to get him off the cross, to get him out of trouble, and is using every toolbox, every tool in the box that he has, Jesus has no interest. He remains silent. He's not trying to stay away from that cross. It is for this purpose that he came. The good shepherd is laying down his life for you. This drives Pilate crazy. Look at verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power? Who's holding all the tools in the box? Pilate. He can fix this for Jesus and Jesus is remaining quiet. If you don't have the power, if you don't have the tools, Jesus, if you make friends with the one that does have the tools, we can solve this issue. And Jesus remains silent. It's driving him crazy. And he says, I have the power to either free you or crucify you. I have the political position to make what I want to happen, happen. And you don't speak to me? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. 
Therefore, the, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus has no interest in the conversation about getting off the cross, but once Pilate changes the conversation to who has power in this moment, Jesus is like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in on that conversation. You wanna talk about you having power? Jesus is not impressed with the toolbox. Jesus is not impressed with worldly power because he knows the only reason why Pilate has been given that power is because it came from above. Now, Pilate at this moment might be thinking, yeah, that's true. If Caesar didn't make me governor, I would have no power. Jesus is talking about where true power comes from. When we are faced with obstacles that seem insurmountable, do we have this faith? All, our opponent has all the power. It's really discouraging. I'm helpless. But do we, like Jesus, say, that doesn't impress me because I know the one that holds the cards to all the situations and he's my dad and he is my king and he has true power and if he's allowing this thing to happen, I trust that he's gonna use this in ways that I can't even imagine. The world could not imagine what was about to happen on that cross what was about to like send a shockwave through the world and through history at the moment on the cross, Jesus knew there is power that is about to explode. I am not impressed with these tools. I pray. I pray as we engage in relationships, at work, in our political conversations, in our parenting kids, in our kids responding to parents, in our wives or girlfriends trying to control a relationship, husbands trying to control a relationship, intimidation, all the opportunities we have to manipulate and to fight to get our way, we would be defined in how we engage by what Jesus is doing now, acknowledging God has the power. I'm not impressed with your power. And if I try and fight with this toolbox, I got no shot. From this, uh, verse 12, from this uh, time on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. The Jewish people, zealous for God. These are like religious zealots. They love God more than anyone. And yet in this moment, they are fighting against God's will. And now for me, I just want to step back and say that should, that should humble us. Because there's a lot of things we get worked up about, isn't there? There's a lot of things where we are fighting with all of our might against this. The reality that I could be zealous for God and actually fighting against what God wants to do should make us all shudder, should hum humble all of us. If we reach into Satan's power toolbox, in this moment, it's really disgusting as we watch these Jews do this. And in the reality... 2024 is coming. 
The next election is coming. And Christians, once again, are going to reach into Satan's toolbox and to try and fight power with power, worldly power. I pray, the leadership here prays, we will be the people whose power comes from Christ, whose allegiances are made with Christ. Golf clap. (laughs) When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him down at the judge's seat. It was the day of preparation of Passover. It was noon. Here is your king. Behold your king, Pilate said. We got a picture of a lamb here. This is important. John is trying to get us to see what's about to happen on this cross. He points to the fact that this is Passover. This lamb is slain for forgiveness of sins. This is how temple worship worked. You bring an animal, and that blood life is paid to cleanse us of our sins. Paul did a great job talking about atonement for sin, that my family is set free from our guilt, set free from our demands of the law because of a lamb. And in this scene, John is saying, it's Passover, And the lamb is about to be slain. And the lamb, what does he say, is a king. There's a crown. The lamb is a king. These are two things in the gospel we have to get. If he is just a lamb, we've been forgiven of sins and we can live however we want. If it's just a crown and he is just a king, then we are obligated to follow him. But with no forgiveness of sins, The gospel is this. He is Lord, crown, and he is Savior, lamb. You'll see this on the commons artwork. It's a picture of the gospel we have to get. In this verse, it is Passover. He is the lamb. Behold the king. We have to hold both of these in our gospel. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. The Jewish leaders continue. Then the chief priest says this, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish people oppressed by Caesar, a bully, ruthless, a record of evil, of arrogance, power hungry, and the people of God are saying, we have no allegiance except to Caesar. Caesar has the most tools in the toolbox, and the only thing better for someone than to have tools is to be friends with someone with tools. And we find here the people are making an allegiance with evil. We have to protect ourselves when we feel desperate, when we feel like we're up against insurmountable power, that we don't make allegiances with evil that we don't find ourselves saying we have no king but Caesar. It's okay. Take away our religious freedoms. I don't want that to happen. We will be just fine. Persecute us. It's okay. I don't want that to happen. We will be fine. 
we have real power. The kingdom of God has actually grown in nations where persecution and liberties have been taken away. We can't be so afraid of our religious perks that we make alliances to anyone but Christ. God's people are fighting with a world-shaped king. And God is fighting with a lamb-shaped king. Real power comes from the lamb. Jesus is exalted. Pilate writes on the cross, king of the Jews. He writes it in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now, in our world today, if you get by with, if you know Mandarin, English, and Spanish, I feel like those three, you can kind of like get along in the world in most countries, okay? Not all. In this world, if you had Greek, Aramaic, and what is it, Hebrew? Or Latin, Latin. If you could get by with those three languages, you kind of got the world covered. And Pilate writes on the cross, king of the Jews, and the king is exalted, Now, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all the nations to me. Our king is being lifted up. Behold the king. And in every language, the proclamation, the euangelion, Jesus is king. He's taken over. He's taken the throne And his power looks nothing like the toolbox. There's three Marys along the cross that are not engaged in the fight. They are just sticking with Jesus. I told my kids throughout the last two years, kids, we're just gonna stick with Jesus, okay? People are fighting, people are lobbing bombs at each other, liberals and Democrats, accusations, all of this stuff, you've left the gospel, you this. Kids, Just stick with Christ. Stay at the feet of Jesus and marry the three Marys. That's all they do in this story. All the mob and the Romans and Pilate and the mockery and the coronation, Mama Bear does not come out of Mary. She takes the position that I'm just gonna stick with him because I believe he has all the power. And what happens is beautiful. From the cross, he's pierced to the tree. The coronated king with his crown, I've been exalted. The euangelion, the gospel, is proclaimed in three languages above my head. I've taken the throne. I am the king. And what happens when you stay at the feet of the king? Jesus looks down at Mary. And he sees John. And he says, This is your son. This is your mom. And from that point on, John took in Mary. Adoption into a family happens at the foot of the cross. The power struggle continues, and yet God says, I will take care of you. My power is greater than theirs. Stay at my feet. I will take care of you. Mom, This is your son. John, take care of my mom. 
Our adoption into the family happens as we stay with Jesus. Now the rest of the story. There's a woman in our church that was getting married, and this is the East Coast, and I don't know the name of the town. But her whole family, the Bakers, they go to this, this wedding. A beautiful wedding. Grandpa George Baker went to this church, decides to leave and go back to the room early. And the group of teenagers, the youngest is 14, decide to have some fun and they beat up George, a member of our church, a member of Salt Ministry. And George does not survive. He's murdered outside of the wedding of his granddaughter. Okay? The greatest day of her life, and now she's in the hospital. Her grandpa's been murdered by a 14-year-old in her wedding gown, she's over a toilet throwing up, sick to her stomach, and she looks up at her dad and she says, I just want these boys to experience the grace of God. And that made its way on the news in this small town and wrecked. I mean, it was the talk of this small town. And when they came back, Aaron Cass, who's in the back, did a story on it and talked about how this murder had led to God and Jesus being glorified in this small town. And Aaron put together this beautiful story. And my friend Brian, who could dismantle your worldview in a second, walked in. And when they talked about George Baker being murdered, the same exact day George was murdered, Brian's brother was killed. His appointment to meet the grace of God was that day. And he had been bitter and hard and fought against God because his brother was killed. And he had used every tool in that box to bully and to power his way through life. And he was good at it. And in that moment, when he heard about the grace of God that flowed like a shockwave from that cross as Jesus took the throne throughout history, has wrecked people's lives in the best way, shattered their hardness of heart, and has reorientated Brian seemed the hardest to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Brian is a pastor today, following Christ and sharing the euangelion, the good news with others. These people that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, at the beginning of Acts, they are the beginning of the church when Peter says, God handed him to you and you crucified him, and he's made him king and lord. And they were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? Repent and believe, and be forgiven. This is a perfect transition into our communion moment. The grace of God is finding you this morning. The offer is to believe this euangelion, the announcement I won't make the horn noise anymore, I'm sorry. <laughs> the announcement, Jesus is Lord, and he is a lamb-shaped king, and his blood is for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm gonna give us a moment as the band comes forward to remember. Here's what I want us to do. Behold the king. Look at the man 
the bread is a representation that orientates our life to the reality that God gave his son for us. The nourishment that we need, the bread of life that we need to live. We need Jesus. This is our declaration. And the cup represents the blood of Christ, the lamb that was slain that forgive us of our sins. I'm gonna pray for us, lead into a time of silence. You can take the elements on your own and then we'll finish by singing to our King. Lord, you are good, you are powerful. True power comes in a lamb-shaped God, in a lamb-shaped King. It is the good news. And this good news is not good if our King has not forgiven us because we have rebelled. Thank you for your grace. Wreck us and rebuild us, reorientate our lives to the Lamb, to the King. We pray in Christ's name, amen.